And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back. To the bins. I got nowhere else to go. I got nowhere else to go. I got nothing else. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Make Bins Marvel. I'm Paul Spitaro, <laughs> and I am joined once again by my friend John Wilson. John, welcome aboard again. Hello, Paul. That's a, that's a great name there. I appreciate that. Well, if, if anybody listening remembers the last time John was on, I said, hey, how about you come back again and we do this, this kind of an extension of Make Ours Marvel, which is one of John's former podcasts. Uh, and he took me up on it, which I am very happy about. And I hope that you listeners feel the same way. So we, we I believe the uh, the assignment was to choose a book that we didn't get to cover on the show that I was looking forward to covering. Exactly. And you picked a book and I'm unless somebody has seen the artwork for the episode, they don't know what it is yet. But what I did was once John picked a book, I went on to Mike's Amazing World and I looked on that month and I tried to find a book that was released on the same day. Figuring if it was on Make Oz Marvel, that's the way it would be done. Uh, and unless the website is wrong, that was the only Marvel superhero book that was released on that particular day. So but that's right. They they had been expanding their line, and this is the first month they actually went beyond their two weeks out of the month publishing schedule that they've been doing ever since the beginning. So Silver Surfer was a third week book, and it was the only one. So there we go. You gave away what the book was. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Furfer Furfer was. The... <laughs> so as John mentioned, he picked Silver Surfer number one. So I said, okay, what what else was there that month? And I was just looking at the covers on Mike's Amazing World, and I picked a book that we're going to get into, which is weird and surreal but let's just talk for a few minutes about you know this is this is like you said marvel started to expand they took all of their uh their uh combined books or their split books and split each one into two books so mm-hmm. uh tales to astonish uh the numbering continued in hulk 102 and submariner got his own series tales of suspense uh, Iron Man got his own series, and issue number 100 became Captain America. Uh, it wasn't quite as simple as that because for whatever weird reason, um, in one month they decided to put out Captain America 100 and Incredible Hulk 102. But oh. for that month, Iron Man and Submariner didn't have a home, so they joined up in a one-shot of Iron Man and the Submariner. Yes, that is true. Yeah, I, I we, did. I, I did I don't omit know why that. they did that. <laughs> I know we did cover uh, one of. I think we covered the Iron Man half of that particular book on an episode way back. Uh, I can only think 
that those two issues or those two stories were already made as split book issues before they realized that they were going to break off and give each one their own series and they decided you know it would be easier to have a one shot book with the two of them than it would be to try and expand them into full full issue stories i'll buy that or i'll even buy that one of them was already done and so they just decided to do the other one to fill in the spot um that seems likely enough i hadn't thought about that but then yeah the next month they have Iron Man one and the Submariner number one. And the other split book that you know people are, I, I think it gets lost in the shuffle a little bit was Strange Tales, which was being split between Nick Fury and Doctor Strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doctor Strange took over the next issue of that. I believe it was one sixty nine, uh, and Nick Fury got his own book starting with number one. And I actually picked for today Nick Fury number three. Uh, which I was kind of excited to pick based upon the fact that I've always really gotten a kick out of the uh, Jim Steranko artwork in, in Marvel, just, you know, his, his approach to it. Uh, the way I see it, and keep in mind, I am a, uh, I, I, I am definitely a Marvel zombie. Uh, I grew up with more Marvel. I mean, I love my DC stuff too, but it's not, it, it didn't resonate as much with me as Marvel did. And, Basically, from the Silver Age, it's kind of like when Marvel took over the uh, the innovation of comics. Uh, you know, Stanley started you know writing stories, you know, along with Jack Kirby, where you know the stories got somewhat more sophisticated than what they came out with earlier. And the art style, you can, you can see the change over the run of Fantastic Four, even to issues that you had gotten to on your series, uh, mm-hmm. where where Kirby was allowed to kind of you know, to, to make his artwork more, less cartoony, let's put it that way, uh, and, and have it, have it have a little bit more weight to it and a little bit more cosmic scale. And then, you know, that, that kind of became the house style. But at that point, I think things kind of broke out. If you look at Tales to Astonish in the early days when, uh, Gene Colan was drawing Iron Man under an assumed name, uh, he was clearly trying to go with the Marvel house style and eventually he broke out and his own style just becomes evident and you the, the, the differences is dramatic uh, and then you had Neil Adams and Jim Steranko creating kind of a cinematic feel to their artwork and Steranko in particular not only had the cinematic but he also had kind of the art deco feel you know the Andy Warhol influenced thing uh it's funny because when he started, he was, like you said, he was very house style. He was actually a little bit subpar house style when Steranko first starts on S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, it's I think he really comes into his own whenever he's able to start doing his own thing. So so that has always gotten me kind of excited. And I, uh, you know, I always just I, I met Jim Steranko at one, you know, actually a few times at conventions. And he's he's friendly enough, but he's a little bit of a. He marches to the beat of his own drum. Let's just put it that way. He's a rock star in his own mind. <laughs> he definitely is. He, he's he's a little smallish. Like it surprised me that that you know that he isn't a oh. bigger guy. Uh, but he's he's there. You know, and he's very dapper in his suit, and uh, he does not like anyone to take his picture, which is just you know like a it, it's a little bit of a quirk. I mean, I I can 
get by it because it's you know you don't really need a picture of Jim Steranko, but it's it's funny how like when people want to take a picture he's he's very camera shy about it. Uh, but in, in talking to him one day, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure I, I wasn't the first one to have this thought, but I said, you know, my biggest complaint about his comic book art is that there's just not as much of it as I would like. Uh, you know, his body of work is not that huge, but most of what I've read, I really enjoy. Uh, so I picked this issue kind of with that mindset. And if I'm just looking at the artwork, I'm not necessarily going to vary off that. But story-wise, this one is just strange. And although this one is strange, I will also say that in general, I was less enthused about his S.H.I.E.L.D. run than I wanted to be as we were going through it. And this is no surprise to anyone who's listened to the Make Ours Marvel podcast, which ended right out a year ago. Um, His storytelling was... I don't know, just wasn't always what we wanted it to be, but the books are amazing to look at. And his innovations are kind of of the same type of innovations that Kirby did. I don't mean that to say he did the same visual innovations, but like that way of changing what characters on a comic page can look like and how they can be drawn and posed and such. He did a lot with layouts, a lot with layouts. Oh yeah. He brought a psychedelic tone to a lot of his books. Um, and you know, visually they're often a feast, but the stories, yeah, stories a bit odd sometimes. Well, I'll give him credit and, and now I'm going to give you I'm going to give you a pre-canned synopsis from Marvel Wiki on this cuz I don't even know if I could synopsize this one. Uh, but anyway, uh, I give him credit for wanting to break barriers and to do things that are different from what are what are expect what's expected. Uh, and and he definitely did that. There's no question about it. Uh, I, I think I need to reread a lot of his stuff just out of, just to see where it lands, because I seem to remember enjoying the Captain America run that he did, which was fairly short, but I seem to remember liking that a lot. And I don't think he was the writer on those. And I think that may be the difference. Um, yeah, very well could be. So this issue, this is uh, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., number three. The release date is May 2nd, 1968, with a cover date of August of 1968. It is written by Jim Steranko. It is penciled by Jim Steranko. It is inked by Dan Adkins, colored by Jim Steranko, lettered by Sam Rosen, and edited by Stan Lee. And I'm going to say right off the bat, I doubt Stan Lee did any editing in this book. so, you know, I, I think it was just like, yeah, Jim, whatever you're going to do, that's fine. Just don't have any curses. Uh, so the synopsis, the story is titled Dark Moon Rise, Hellhound Kill. And if you know what that means, you let me know. Uh, Nick Fury has responded to a personal call from one of his World War II soldiers, Ken Astor. However, by the time Fury arrives at the mysterious Castle Ravenlock in Scotland, Ken has been killed by a ghostly hellhound that lurks the grounds at night. The Dark Mansion is joined by three psychic investigators, Mycroft, Countess Caution, and a young girl named Rachel. Rachel is especially sensitive to psychic phenomena and other things unseen as, ironically, 
Rachel is blind. After several surreal encounters, Fury determines that the haunting of Castle Ravenlock is a ruse. Mycroft is actually Miles Van Croft, an escaped Nazi who had placed an underground submarine station at Ravenlock during World War II, who partnered with the Lord of the Manor, Sir Gavin Ravenlock, before turning the Hellhound upon him too to throw off suspicions. Rycroft is then accidentally slain by the Hellhound while fleeing from a skirmish with fury. And in a strange twist of fate, young Rachel is determined by the groundskeepers Oh, excuse me. Young Rachel is determined to be the groundskeeper's Angus, Angus McGregor's niece. Now, my biggest memory of this book is that in Not Brand Eck number 11, they did the same. They, they parodied this story. And this book was cover dated August of 2000, uh, 1968. Uh, the Not Brand Eck number 11 came out four months later. And it was a story called Dark Moon Rise Heckhound Hurt uh, and Ooh. it was written by Arnold, Mc, Arnold McDrake or I guess is Arnold Drake and penciled by Frank McSpringer who I assume is Frank Springer and it's it's really just making fun of the stylings of the book as well as uh, Starenko's uh, verbose narration in this uh, story uh, mm. which is the first thing that really jumped out at me there's, there's a lot of narration in this thing. Uh, I, I really think it's an effort to try and make this different. And it, it definitely succeeds on making it different. But the question, you know, that comes to mind to me is, is different better? Uh, I think it's good to take chances. I think it's good to throw things out there and, and see what sticks on the wall. But it's not, o it's not always a good idea to just let somebody run wild. We've talked in the past on this show about, you know, how many years later, Todd McFarlane, how we thought he was better when he had somebody to reel him in than when he, when it was uh, Todd, Todd McFarlane unchained. And I've said many times that I think Jack Kirby was better with Stan Lee there to, to tether him to the ground, uh, as opposed to when Jack was doing his own scripting. Uh, I think this is an example of the same thing. I think a, a strong editor could have been used in this book just to make the story more comprehensible. As I was reading it, I was I kept saying to myself, what? Uh, there's points where, where the storytelling, I think, really does fall short and, and it, it becomes hard to figure out exactly what's going on. And you really got to kind of struggle a little bit to, to know what the heck is, is happening. Uh, now, I feel like... Go ahead. I feel like Starenko does moments really well. Uh, this this book is full of a lot of solid moments. You know, the the armor falling on them, him saving the girl, finding out she's blind, dun, dun, dun. Um, you know, going out there and being attacked by the hellhound, talking with, you know, there, there are just lots of, lots of neat moments, but stringing it all together to make a story, and then you have the explanation, which, oh, by the way, also explains the Loch Ness Monster along the way, uh, it's just, it's odd. And if you think about it, this is a 20 page story that he only does 17 pages of because the opening splash is just his evil winds poem with the castle on the hill. And then the first two pages are a two page spread that's mostly white. 
Yeah, it's really it's really it's, a two-page title card. Yeah. A two-page title card, exactly. You've got the you've got the the feet of the dead body in the bottom left. You've got some nice stylized, you know, person running in the in the title. That's kind of neat. But the entire right-hand side is just Oh, and by the way, in the distance, there's a staircase. And the staircase is pretty well rendered from an artistic point of view. It's you know done in black and white with a yellow moon behind it, and it's all shadows and bricks. And yeah, I mean, it looks pretty cool. But I agree with you that it's 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 placing it's, it's placing style over substance is what it's doing. And years down the road, Marvel will change their standard story length to 17 pages. And if this were from that time period or like just before or just after that time period, I would say, oh, he wrote a 17 page story and then added three pages on. But it's not. Everything's 20 pages for Marvel during this time. Everything is 20 pages, except for this over surfer story, which we're going to talk about in a minute, because that's a special first longer book. Right. But uh, I mean, there's a lot of really cool looking images in here. And I think that's, I think, I think he was trying to get a little bit artsy with the story, but I think he was trying to get a lot artsy with the art. Uh, and, and it was kind of let the, let the story fit kind of what he wanted to do with the art. I love when artists play with the grid and they don't just go with a standard thing. Uh, and I, I don't know if there's one page in here that has a standard grid. Right. So, so that's, you know, that's all good. And, he really did a you know a kind of cool job with the shadows and the light uh and playing with you know backgrounds and things like that uh also you know his his perspective on certain shots is is dynamic and dramatic you know right right from the you know you get to after that title card the next page uh you know you have a shot where you're seeing a close up of fury's face and then behind it you're seeing a shot of the library looking down on it, which is, I, I you know, it's also uh, Fury in that shot, uh, but it almost, it's almost reminiscent of, uh, of Escher. Uh, you know, it, it's just, uh, he's definitely playing with perspective. Uh, the next page, he's got, you know, a giant thing with the armor falling, but only a couple of small panels with it. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot that he's doing here, and then we have, you know, on on the uh, what is it, page seven, uh, you know, two images and a lot of narration text. There's mm-hmm. there's a lot of text in this book. He would do that from time to time in his Shield run in the in the um, you know, the monthlies where it's the front half of the book where you just and he does another one later where the entire page is one splash image with an inch and a half margin down one side where he's just filled it with text. Um, that, that's just it's an odd choice. That screams to me, though, that he was an artist who was trying to work as a writer. And I guarantee you that, that he, he would probably corroborate that. Yep. You know, he, he couldn't he didn't have the, the skill of, of a, you know, experienced, really talented writer to get by without adding all this dialogue. You know, Todd McFarlane put it in a way that I think really probably resonates with some people is that you've got this fantastic artist who's, you know, got a good, a strong career. A lot of people like his style. His name is Todd McFarlane. He's been drawing Spider-Man. And so they give that artist 
his own title to feature his artwork. And they hire this no-name writer who's never written a single word, who also happens to be named Todd McFarlane. And he's getting his very first writing, you know, efforts on the same book that he's also drawing. And it's just, it's not going to be necessarily a good thing that he's writing his own art because the experience levels are very, very different. And I think this might be another case of Storenko being an artist who is trying to be a writer and I'd say succeeding more strongly than maybe McFarlane's first efforts as a writer, but um, but definitely with some rough spots. That that makes a lot of sense, but I think you know there's there's a right way and there's a wrong way. First of all, McFarlane shouldn't be blaming them for putting him out there with no experience because I'm no, no, sure. No, no, but just 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 the the dichotomy is what I was going. But for. but I'm I sure I'm sure it. he lobbied to be his own writer. Uh, I, I don't think they had to convince him to do it. I, I would be very surprised if that were the case. But what I think of as, as the situation that, that comes to mind for me where it really worked was John Byrne. Uh, I think what happened, at least the way I've pieced it together, is when he got to the X-Men, he and Chris Claremont truly had a collaborative effort when it came to plotting and writing. I think Claremont had more of a, a say on, you know, I think he would do more of the actual scripting, you know, the dialogue and all. And I think he also had more of a hand in, hey, we're going to throw out a couple of nuggets here that we're going to pay off five issues from now. But as far as the actual story that was going on in each issue, I think they, they really did have a partnership going. So I think, you know, in his own way, what Byrne did was he kind of apprenticed as a writer by having someone there working with him. And then after he got comfortable enough with it, then he went over and started doing the Fantastic Four. And when he did the Fantastic Four, I thought he did a really good job with it. Mm. But I think he, I he allowed it. I'm yet. sorry. I've not read that Fantastic Four run yet. Okay, well, I would I would definitely recommend it. Uh, but you've you've read his Superman run, and I'm sure you mm -hmm. have an opinion on that. Uh, I think by the time he was working as his own writer, he was an experienced writer. Yes. Yeah, and he does pretty well with his writing. He has a few quirks and tropes that I take issue with, but he does generally rather well with his writing. Th this issue has another weird thing of almost like a second double page title splash in the middle of the book. Mm -hmm. The Hellhound of Ravenlock, whenever the, the scene moves from the castle to outside on the moor, and they're suddenly all of a sudden being chased by the Hellhound. Now, if you take that spread, put a bunch of names down at the bottom and a little box that says PG, that could be a movie poster. Yeah, it's a good movie poster, but I think like that's that's what I think he was going for there. That I you know I I like the way he played with the uh, coloring in a lot of the book, but what do you think of his choice to have the Hellhound be kind of just a, I guess cobalt blue color? <laughs> like I I I don't get that. Um, there's so much white background that having it be like a light blue seems to to work well enough for me. It gives it a sort of ethereal look. It's it's a color that no dog would be, and it does sort of invoke the idea of a phantom. Um, the fact that it's just turns out to be phosphorescent paint at the end is very Scooby Doo, but Scooby Doo didn't exist yet, so. Um, <laughs> 
but yeah, he he also you know, and and this is I'm going to criticize the art, which I'm not really criticizing much of the art because I think it's pretty surreal and cool through most of it. But he seems to not have a good perspective on the size of the hellhound because it seems to change from that picture. Then you go to the next page, uh, the first shot of, of Fury kind of hanging dangling from it. It looks to be about the same size, but if you go directly below that to the third panel, it looks like it's this tiny little, you know, like, like maybe a third of the size. Yeah, when it's chasing him, it is larger than he is, and behind him, which makes it even, you know, bigger by perspective. And yet, it looks like it, it proceeds to shrink over the course of three pages there. Yeah, so that's one of the few criticisms I have of the artwork. You know, my other criticisms are all really very minor. I, I think they're all okay. And more of it is, more, more often than not, I'm, I'm kind of just, you know, looking at the artwork and just impressed with the layouts. Uh, I love the layouts, but I don't like the storytelling, if that's fair. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm curious to know how much communication, direct communication he had with the colorist. Because so much of the vibe in this comic, and in his art in general, really depends on how things are colored. Well, and I, I, I thought it said he is the colorist. Is he the colorist? Let me just look at ju- Yes, he is He is credited in, in the Marvel Wiki as the colorist. Okay, okay. They don't usually credit colorists in the credits here, so it's only if those are known or not. So, yeah, he colored his own work. I totally buy that because, like I said, his art depends upon coloring yeah i mean and if we go to page 18 uh the top four panels are all of nick fury uh and they're all black and white mm-hmm. you know so it's clearly depending on the shadows and all of that to to you know to give the mood uh and then underneath that we go right back to color images there's there's definitely some things you know a lot of times when i see famous art there's a lot of times where I could truly appreciate the quality of it. And then there's some times where I look at it and say, I'm not sure exactly why this is good. Right. And in this instance, it's, I mean, I like it. So it's not, I'm not sitting here saying I can't tell why it's good. But like with some of that artwork, a lot of the choices he seems to make here are for the purpose of making you say, oh, wow, that's cool, as opposed to giving any sort of, uh, a storytelling beat. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I think you, you lose some points for that because, I, you know, a truly talented storyteller would be able to do both. So, you know, I think he's a truly talented artist. I don't know if he's a true, truly talented storyteller. I was just uh, editing uh, what's going to be a George Perez uh, tribute episode that's going up on the feed very soon. Uh and I opened the episode with an, an interview, a clip from an interview where he's talking about storytelling and how, you know, that's the biggest weakness with a lot of young artists is not knowing how to tell a story and that you can actually teach people how to draw better. But storytelling is something that you can only teach so much. It's kind of either you have a feel for it or you don't. And uh, what he likened it to, and I thought this was really interesting, was he likened it to reading and he talked about like when you read something and you can feel the pace picking up and, and, and the images in your mind moving faster and faster, uh, you know, can you come up with a way to put that into pictures? 
And I, I thought that was an interesting perspective that I, I never considered in my own amateur, very amateurish art. Uh, and I, I think if I had the advantage of that perspective when I was younger, I might have been a better artist than I was. So, I, I, but, but I think I think Storenko does not tell a story in his artwork. I think he is more into the individual images looking cool. Right. Um, page 19 is what I mentioned earlier. That's just one big. And it, the Nazis feel tacked on. The uh, the Loch Ness monster explanation feels even more tacked on. Mm-hmm. But to just give an explanation for why this guy is doing all of this. Oh, yeah, there's um, there's a Nazi base underneath the surface of Scotland. Well, it, it felt to me like I want to tell this story. I want to tell this, you know, gothic mystery story. But somehow I have to make it work with Nick Fury. So mm-hmm. I'm going to make the initial guy that's killed be one of the people who was, you know, in World War Two with him. And then I'll tie it into the Nazis at the end. You know, that, yeah. that's that's what it feels like. Like that was. You know, like you say, tacked on. Uh, this person who was killed at the, you know, before the story opened, uh, what's him, Ken something or other, uh, Ken Astor. Uh, in your run covering uh, Sergeant Fury, do you recall that character ever coming up? No, he did not come up, and it was actually it's not the first time that Storenko seems to have very little concept of what continuity had gone before. Um, of course, Sergeant Fury is still an ongoing series at this point, so they could conceivably work him in later. But his Howling Commandos are a very established cast of characters, and this guy is not one of them. So when Fury is like, yeah, we were in the war together, I was his sergeant. I'm just like, he, he, I never saw him in the war with you when you were a sergeant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, um, so yeah, I, I, I noticed that was odd. Yeah, I I have to say uh, I can't really I couldn't really recommend this story to anyone who wants anything other than uh, you know some pop art. Yeah, it's a completionism if you want to read Stranko's Shield Run, um, but it's not a good example of Stranko's Shield Run. And he only had one more issue after this, right? Which which um, was issue- another very famous cover. Yeah, the issue five um, that has the Scorpio and the the orange and pink, you know, face and yeah, it's very very psychedelic. It's not the one where they're all standing on like a Hubert pyramid. Well, actually, I think that's issue one. I'm gonna have to correct that. We have uh, two more issues after this one. No, he doesn't do four. Oh, he doesn't. Okay, and yeah, and issue five, six is Frank Springer. Okay, yeah. So Springer takes over after he leaves um, as the artist. Roy Thomas does the writing. He does covers a little bit longer. Actually, the issue six cover is a sort of iconic cover that um, Superman homaged during his exile run. Um, and seven is a fantastic surreal cover by Storenko, but he doesn't do the stories. Just jumping ahead here to look. Six, six is very cool. And yeah, seven. seven. I mentioned Escher earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That, this, this, uh, if, if certainly he uh, didn't steal Escher in this story we're covering today nearly as much as he did on that cover. But just the same. Uh, I guess we can rate this. I. Well, the only. Oh, go ahead. Go. 
Actually, the, I was going to say, the only thing I was going to say was, and I had something else I was going to say, but it was actually just that, that um, yeah, he only had one more issue. He brings his Scorpio character back and find out that it's Nick Fury's younger brother. But, um, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so what is the rating scale on this? Well, we, you know, as a teacher, you should appreciate. We do, uh, we rate the cover, the interior art, the story, and then overall, we do it on, a, on an a, a through F scale. Uh, and the final grade does not have to add up to what the original grades are, because as I always say, the, the, the final product could be more or less than the sum of its parts, depending on how mm-hmm. it makes you feel overall. So I think the cover is, you know, pretty cool. It's almost typical Steranko if there is such a thing. Uh, and I didn't describe the cover, which I should. It shows the young girl, Rachel, the blind girl, kind of running towards the reader as the hellhound is jumping over a gravestone to try and get to her. Uh, and then there's the castle in the back with, uh, it, you know, I guess it's Cas- Castle Grayskull. And, uh, <laughs> you know, beyond the castle, we kind of see the silhouetted uh, Nick Fury in the clouds. And it's all got a very orange uh, film noir feel to it. Uh, I think it's pretty cool looking. I think it's, you know, it is pretty much a poster image, but it's also giving you uh, somewhat of a feel for what's going to go on within. Uh, oh, and just uh, at the bottom left of the corner, you could see there's a mysterious figure, you know, kind of coming after the girl. But it looks like he's he's just walking at a steady pace while she's trying to run, but he's going to continue to make up ground on her while the dog is attacking her as well. So there's a lot a lot of stuff going on in the cover, and I think it's really cool. And I guarantee you, uh, even with what I think of this story, I would buy this book for the cover alone. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the cover mm-hmm. an A. Uh, the interior art, like I said, there's a lot of experimental things going on. Uh, I don't think there's really much in the way of images that I think are poorly rendered. Uh, there are some perspective issues, but I think when you play with perspective as much as Steranko did, uh, you, you run that risk. Uh, the place where, oh, and he also did a lot of playing around with the shadows and the coloring, which I give extra credit for. The only point where I take credit away is I do think the storytelling is poor. I think without reading the dialogue, you have no clue what's going on. And the dialogue is very clumsy, and you know we'll talk about that in a moment. So... I'm going to give it a B on the interior art, even though I think the individual images rank, you know, rate a higher number. But just because the storytelling is lacking, I'm going to give it a B. Uh, story-wise, again, I, I think it's it's too verbose, it's too all over the place, and there's too many just convenient plot twists in it. So I'm going to say a C plus on the story, uh, and overall I'll give the book a B just because there's some art in it that you know, that I, that I enjoy looking at. So I'm with you on the cover. The cover is eye catching the, um, the use of negative space to be the main line work does really well in some places. Um, changing of color to be a line in the art is in the Stranko does really well. So like down the right hand side of the castle, there's not a line there. It just goes from the white of the sun glare on the castle wall directly to orange 
of the of the sun and so the coloring is what distinguishes those shapes um and they're just other just really interesting choices made in the presentation of the art i think the cover is the best thing about the book the cover presents a spooky uh british gothic horror story is in front of you and i would also recommend you know the based on the cover it's saying yes this is a book you should read um the inside art i'm also going to give an a because it's delightful to look at throughout um it's not like blowing away it's not as oh my gosh this is changing the game like some of his other stuff he has done but it is strong and uh easy to understand at least on an individual image level, I'm not saying the storytelling is necessarily strong, and that might actually be worth considering some points off on, but but just the execution of all the different images, they look amazing. And um, there are several places in here where I'm just like, my eyes are just drawn into the details of how he executed the image. And as a non-art guy, if you're getting me thinking about the art and thinking about how this was done and what kinds of techniques are being used – that's you know that's saying something positive about the art so the art is an a i really don't like this story like when you said issue three and i was like oh no is it the hellhound issue (laughs) (laughs) yep i was like (laughs) oh dear um it holds together by the skin of its teeth it's barely passable as a narrative structure uh so barely passable i'm going to give it a very weak c and um i would not suggest to anyone that they read this unless they are a nick fury or shield or steranko completist it doesn't need to be read i do not disagree at all <laughs> we, we may have get slightly veered off each other with the grades, but I think as far as the description of what you talked about, totally agree with everything you said. Hopefully we like the next book more. We'll find out. It has its own quirks. Are you ready to move on? I, yes, I am. And historically, I am, I'm going to say I, I'm a much, much bigger fan of the next book. Uh, as a fairly young comic collector in my early teens i saved up my my money and i bought a back issue of this book and i do not know why but it is no longer in my collection and it is on my to get list only i need to find it at a price where i can be comfortable buying it and that's not so easy to do so as we said earlier, the end of 67 and the first half of 68 were an era of big change for Marvel. Um, they had had restrictions on the number of titles they were able to publish uh, on a regular basis because their distributor was their competition, National Publications. The distribution arm of National Publications was Marvel's distributor as well, and their public, the competition said, yeah, you can't publish more than X numbers, X number of comics per month. And they had wiggled through some loopholes occasionally, and so they were able to put out their king-size specials, and they were able to do more issues in one month and fewer in another month and such, things like that. But that contract had run out. 
Marvel had a new distribution method and they were able to start expanding their titles. And so what they did was they added three new books. Uh, the first was Captain Savage and his Leatherneck Raiders, which is a spinoff of Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos. And it's less notable than Sergeant Fury, but also has some really interesting stuff like the first origin for Hydra. Uh, and the return of Baron Strucker after he disappears from Sergeant Fury and has shown up as the head of Hydra in the S.H.I.E.L.D. strip. Well, Captain Savage goes back and says, so let's do some connective tissue. This other World War II military group runs into a primitive version of Hydra. And so we're going to see how – so it's, it's got some interesting stuff going on. Um, also, Marvel's space-born superhero, Captain Marvel – which uh, was purely a trademark grab at the now available name Captain Marvel. Uh, And although it eventually even implement the whole body swapping concept from the faucet Captain Marvel, at first it's just pure alien visiting Earth and trying to fit in sci-fi superhero stuff. And honestly, not super remarkable (laughs) in its first few issues. But the third new title was a spotlight series for Jack Kirby's creation, purely Jack Kirby's creation, because when Steve, uh, when Stan Lee got the pages for Fantastic 458 back, he said, wait a second, what? Because the Silver Surfer was not in the plot they had discussed. So Fury has created this, car- this, this character called the Silver Surfer, and Stan Lee decides to give him his own series drawn by... Not Jack Kirby. John Buscema, who's amazing, but not Jack Kirby. John Buscema is doing the art on this. So we had the big premiere issue released on May 16th of 1968, the origin of the Silver Surfer. So basically what we've got going on here, and this is an oversized issue. They're they're doing something experimental. They have an oversized issue with a 40-page lead story and a 13-page backup with The Watcher, which I don't know about you, but I didn't read The Watcher story. I wasn't, I wasn't going to talk about The Watcher story. I didn't read it for um, today, but I have read it. I've read it before, too, yeah. I figure we didn't do the backups on um, Jimmy Olsen. We don't need to do the backups here. Fair enough. Okay. So Silver Surfer, he's just chilling. He's chilling out being a silver dude who surfs through the sky. When he sees an out-of-control capsule falling through the sky, uh, he decides to make like Spider-Man from his own amazing issue number one. He rescues the uh, capsule and pulls out Colonel John Jameson, safe but unconscious, and takes him to a nearby aircraft carrier. Now, Silver Surfer does not have the best reputation, and so the uh, military people think that Surfer was responsible for Jameson's danger, and several fighter jets mobilize and attack the Surfer, who bemoans mankind's affinity for violence and streaks off before he can be hurt. Uh, Surfer then flies over the capitals of several different nations for no apparent reason, but definitely freaking them out. So they attack him. And so Silver Surfer glories in the beauty of planet Earth, but bemoans mankind's affinity for violence and longs to once again roam the far reaches of space. He then thinks back to his early days, his youthful years as Norin Rad upon the planet Shangri-La. I mean, Zen-La. <laughs> Turns out the Silver Surfer, who in his first appearance barely understood what humans were 
and what love and emotions were, was once a human in love. And uh, he remembers going to the library and watching all the videos about how his own people went from violence and you know primitive lifestyles to space exploration to a peaceful but stagnant utopia. And that stagnancy is what bothers Norrin Rat. He does not like living this life where everything is handed to him on a platter. He wants to struggle, to fight for his existence, to to march to the music of the lute or whatever Kirk said in that one episode. Um, but back on Earth in the present day, Surfer gets attacked by some yetis because the book is long. We need to fill 40 pages. He surfs away and thinks about some of his recent appearances in other books back when he tried to make friends with the Hulk, but the Hulk fought him. So he tried to befriend Dr. Doom, but Doom just wanted his power. So the surfer finds a buried city in a mountain and wonders if the peace of death and ruin is the only peace that mankind will ever find as he once again bemoans mankind's affinity for violence. He thinks back to his beloved Shala Bal and how she just wasn't good enough for him because he wanted to struggle for life instead of living his easy, peaceful, utopian life. But then came the day when Zen Law was attacked by Galactus. It's probably worth noting that you know it's Galactus, and I know it's Galactus, but the people of Zen Law, they don't know what a Galactus is. So all they see is a spherical ship approaching, and they decide, huh, that looks dangerous, let's shoot it. And so they decide to destroy it, and they use their weapon supreme which is a cobalt-based explosive. They send it up against Galactus's ship, and the explosion is so massive and the radiation so destructive that it actually destroys their own civilization on Zen La, but leaves Galactus's ship unharmed because it's friggin' Galactus, and he has a nice sphere ball ship, and he's going to be cool. So Norrin Rad says, I will find out what's going on and who this person is and who will help me stand against Galactus, but everyone is basically ready to give up and die. They have no other hope, and so Norrin Rad barely convinces the scientists to build him a spaceship, and I guess there's enough time to build an entire spaceship, because that's what he does. So Norrin Rad uses the spaceship, he flies up, and he meets Galactus's ship, and tries to sue for peace, but Galactus takes him inside and says, look, I'm fucking Galactus. I want to eat your world. And Norrin Rad is like, no, 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 don't eat our world. Maybe maybe go find some other worlds without life on them and eat those? And Galactus is like, nope, I don't have time to look for other worlds. I'm hungry. Now, maybe if I had a herald to do that for me, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, but I don't. So Nornrad is like, oh, but wait, I can be your herald. Just please spare Zen Law. And Galactus is all great, but you can't be a human and be my herald. You gotta be silvery and surfery. So Galactus zaps Nornrad, turns him into the Silver Surfer, and says, Now go make me a sandwich. I mean, find me a planet. <laughs> and so uh, the Surfer goes and says goodbye to Shalabal, and then he's off to space, off to go be a Silver Surfer. And anytime he comes to a planet with life on it, he's like, Nope, Galactus can't eat this one. But when he gets to Earth, Galactus is all, I've been waiting too long, super hungry. The surfer says, No, no, you can't. They're humans. I'm going to fight you. And so he fights Galactus for the humans, but he's punished by Galactus, punished by being abandoned and exiled from the spaceways, trapped on the planet Earth forever. And we don't even go back to the present day. We just end at the end of that flashback, and that's the end of the first issue. I'm going to tell you, 
I, I don't know if I can be objective on this one. I love this book. <laughs> um, like I said, I, I have to, I need, I need to find a way to own it again. Um, first of all, first thing that, that jumps out at me is they should not allow John Jameson to fly ever again. <laughs> he crashes all the time. I don't even know why he's in here, but I also kind of like when he shows up. And my, my favorite factoid about John Jameson, I mentioned this on Make Us Marvel back in the day, but in case any listeners out there didn't listen, the original John Jameson story in Amazing Spider number one is a John Glenn story. The launch that goes wrong is an emulation of the John Glenn launch that they actually pause and delayed countdown to fix the navigation guidance package on the capsule which they didn't fix in the spider-man version that's what faults out right and jameson is even wearing the exact same astronaut outfit that glenn wore so i kind of love that john jameson is like john glenn in the marvel universe so john glenn gets to marry she-hulk one day but you know um i just got to see who john who who john glenn's dad is and then see if that (laughs) correlates in any way it's Probably not Stanley. Is John J. Jonah Jameson, I believe, was supposed to be a parody of Stanley, but I could be wrong. Stanley did the writing on Jameson. Yeah, that's why it seems so. strange that he would be a. I know Funky Flesh Man was a parody on Stanley, right? But I don't know about J. Jonah Jameson. But yeah, I, I read that somewhere once. But as I was saying it out loud, I was like, well. Maybe unless he was just Lee wrote it. Unless he was being self-deprecating, it's, it's possible. Um, the reputation of the surfer, you know, I remember reading this as a kid when I got it, and thinking, yeah, these people are stupid. What's wrong with them? But the surfer came here to show Galactus where Earth was, <laughs> and mm-hmm. if, if they don't know the whole the whole story, you you can understand why they'd be afraid of him. And why they would think that he's potentially, you know, a, a, a an enemy. Uh, I think it's got to take a lot to overcome that. So I'm kind of cool with that. Uh, story-wise, my understanding, and I don't know if this is fact or not, or if it's apocryphal, but my understanding was that Kirby did not like the idea of uh, the origin story as it present was presented. And I'm not sure if it's, he didn't want the surfer to have any origin at all. You know, wanted to, him to be just a mysterious being, or if he wanted him to be part of this, you know, that th- this is the way he was born, uh, as opposed to him having been just part of a regular humanoid race on another planet and transformed into the surfer. And I'm not sure when that origin story was cooked up, if it was before like, I know that Kirby envisioned the Silver Surfer as a non-human. It's it's very plain and obvious from the way that Galactus trilogy plays out and the Surfer's interactions with humanity over the next several stories. Surfer does not understand humans and finds them fascinating. So the idea to go back and say, but actually he's he was a human, seems at odds with that. Now, I've never read an account of Let's do a Silver Surfer book. Let's do a Silver Surfer book without Jack Kirby. John Buscema come up with the story. You know, what order of events that all happened Oh, I suspected it was Stan Lee's story. 
You think Lee came up with the story? Yeah, I think he, you know, he, as, as I believe he was famous for, I think he came up with at least the bones of the story and, and gave them to Buscema, who, who, you know, ran with it. Uh, and I think Kirby was, was opposed to it. So I think that's why it went to Buscema. And the interesting thing about it, though, is I think in this series, Buscema made the surfer his own character. Uh, I've, I've talked in the past about having like two signature artists for a character. Uh, one being the one who you most quickly associate with the character and the other being the one who you think is the best artist ever to have drawn them. I'm not sure on the second one where I go, but on the first one, Buscema is the first artist that I relate to the surfer. And I think it's on the strength of this series. In fact, I know it's on the strength of this series. So I think he made the character his own in, in this time. Um, like I said, I'm not sure who is the best artist on him. It, it may be, they both might be Buscema, actually, because I really do love his artwork in here. And there's been a lot of iconic Silver Surfers. It's, it's interesting because the character has such a deceptively simple design that you would think anyone who draws comic humans can draw the Silver Surfer. And yet... There are just some aspects to him that, that need to be done a certain way. I did not read any of the All Red series. I plan to. I haven't read it yet. But I really liked the covers I was seeing of the Silver Surfer from him. But it's a very different style from this because it's Mike All Red. Yeah, I did see some of it. I'm, I'm not a big, big fan of All Red style. Uh, I know I know it's got its own place, but it's it's a, just a little too cartoony for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's definitely Yeah, it's not going for the, the realism. And, and I, I, I'm not... I, I didn't read the series either, so maybe I'm totally off base on this, and maybe they would uh, surprise me. But I don't see the Surfer as a character that lends himself to a cartoony series. So, you know, maybe I, maybe eventually I'll get down around to reading those, but I'm not sure. Uh, what else about this story? I love the Yetis. I got a big kick yeah, out of that. Out of nowhere, Yetis. Fighting Yetis. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was fun, but it was just like, okay. Yeah, it was just, just you know what? We have a page and a page, two pages to kill. Let's throw some Yetis in here. Actually, it's is it two pages? Page and a half. Mm-hmm. So it's I don't know. It, it just I guess it's just showing you that he's being attacked no matter where he goes and no matter what he runs into. And while he's got the power to uh, take out whoever's attacking him, he's not real, you know, he's not a violent being. So he, he wouldn't do that. I don't care for the way uh, that Buscema draws the Hulk's face uh, on page 14. A little too, Which is he, he looks like the blob. His, is it his brother, Sal, who would have the epic run on? Yeah, oh, Sal, Sal drew many, many issues of the Hulk. So, yeah. and I, I mean, you know, Buscema is an interesting case study because he apparently did not like drawing superheroes. He he oh. much preferred drawing, uh, you know, Savage Sword of Conan and that type of thing. Uh, but he... He certainly left his stamp on things like the Avengers yeah, and such. he did. But that was not his favorite thing to do. Uh, and I, Is that like John Travolta who doesn't like to dance but learns the dance moves for the movies and has so many iconic dance movies? <laughs> Maybe. That may be a good comparison. Uh, it's funny because I, I've said many times that I, I enjoy things more when I know the artist, and I'm talking, you know, whether it's an artist drawing or singing or writing or 
musician, whatever, uh, when I feel like they're having a good time doing what they're presenting. So to know that Buscema didn't really enjoy drawing superheroes and yet enjoy his superhero work so much uh, creates like kind of a, a, a strange uh, contrast. Uh, but just the same, I, I really, I, I, like you said, I think he really made his mark on the superhero world, especially in the Avengers and, and I think in the Silver Surfer series. The, um, the number ones from this era, you know, all the, all the launch issues for the new series, they have a weird track record of not always being good starting places for the character. Um, like with Iron Man, it just picks up right in the middle of the action that had been going on in suspense. And same with Namor. Um, Captain America at least takes some time to remember his origin before jumping right back into the action. I think the Hulk did with, as well. Uh, right. This issue gives a solid origin for the Silver Surfer, reminds you of some of the recent stories, and the present-day action doesn't even matter too much in the context of what's going on. It's just more like a framework for the uh, the origin and everything else. So I think this is possibly the most effective as a premiere issue of all of the ones that they did here. Um, yeah, the other one that just we, a really great place to start. we left off Captain, uh, Captain Marvel, which picked up from Marvel Superheroes, where he had two issues. Yeah. So that, so that right. one also didn't have, you know, an, a, a real solid starting place for issue number, issue number one. And that was almost more like like a showcase at DC situation where you pick up the two showcase issues before you get the uh, launch. And, you know, Silver Surfer, even though he didn't have an ongoing storyline, he was, you know, a pre-established character. Um, his flashbacks, you know, there are some weird quirks. He is as much as he moons over his memory of Zen Law and and Shalabal, he does not give Shalabal the time of day in this story he is all wrapped up in his own brooding he's very reed richards like yeah yeah that's not a bad comparison leave me alone woman i'm dealing with emotions yeah exactly don't be a don't be who is it don't be a foolish female (laughs) right reed has his science and norn has his brooding one of the things i like that they built on you know from this and it took many years for them to do it is they ended up making Galactus have his uh, heralds uh, be the element, elements. Because you had the Silver Surfer for air, and you had Fire Lord for fire, obviously. You had Terex for, for earth. Uh, and the air walker, well, the air walker was actually also air. Uh, did he have a water? Well, no, the surfer is for water. Yeah, because it's a surfboard. Yeah. The, and then you had the air walker for, for air, Fire Lord for fire, and uh, Terex for earth. Interesting. Interesting. I did think that they got to the idea of him being Galactus's herald just a little bit too quickly and easily because he really gets up to Galactus and they had that entire conversation in the space of about a page or two. Well, think about and if this it, issue came out, you know, 25, 30 years later. How, this, yeah. this would be this would be a 12 issue series. I just feel like they spent so much time building up to Galactus that once they're finally there, it's like, oh, we're running out of space. <laughs> I really like the image where he, where you know, the full page image where he has recreated him. He's telling him to rise, which they kind of recreated in the Silver Surfer cartoon. If you've ever seen that, I actually haven't. 
all those '90s cartoons. I'm, I need to watch them. Do you have? I've been uh, working my way through the X Men, and I'm getting to Spider Man soon. Do you have Disney Plus? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's available on there. Uh, Scott and I did a uh, an episode where we the first three issues, first three episodes of that are his origin. So we did an, ep- an issue, an episode rather, where we reviewed those. And I, I would recommend them. It's it's a little. Uh, it's a, it's, a, it's a little different, but that image of him coming out of Galactus's hand, you know, re, recreated is in that series. And there's an interesting sort of difference in perspective on exactly what happens to Noran Rad here. Because if you just look at the way Buscema draws it, Noran Rad is completely recreated. Mm-hmm. And so the I, but the 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 description that Stan Lee gives is basically he's just been given a silver skin that's going to protect him from space. Yeah. No, you know, you, I, the page before he arises, it's, it's as if he's broken down to his core elements and recreated again. Right. And I think that that is more in keeping with the silver circle we've seen so far. You know, the, the second Fantastic Four film, you know, that certainly has its detractors, but the silver surfer, I think, is one of the best parts of that film. And that presentation is definitely not a dude with silver skin. He is an entity of some sort. And I like the idea of the silver surfer for being an entity, but of course, once this is established, that's all gone. Now I'm trying to um, remember if they retconned him because they did definitely retcon him, but I'm trying to remember what they did was eventually that he didn't remember his past, uh, that it came back to him over time. And I don't remember if they said that he you know, that was from the moment he was recreated or at some point Galactus realized, hey, he's not going to do what he needs to because he has too much of a conscience and then kind of wiped him clean. Uh, but there was something like that, that he his memory and his history was taken from him. OK, because that is something I was wondering. It's um, Silver Surfer, how he connects from his origin to now. And Medusa famously doesn't have any connection from her origin story to how she got in that cave where the wizard found her. Um, neither one of those things was connected on the page at the time. I'm sure later stories flesh that, like you said. Also, the recap of the FF portion of the story leaves out some major elements that would, you know, sort of point to those questions. Um, there's nothing about Alicia reminding Surfer what humans are, you know, and why they need to live. It seems to be Silver Surfer presenting that to Galactus all of his own accord. Right. And that's just not the way the story was. Right. And and even though this is a uh, you know an ultra sized issue, uh, which it should be, we should make note this cost a whole quarter. Oh. In an era when comics, I think we're going for fifteen cents. Uh. So it's it's a you know it's a a bit a longer story, but even with the longer story, like you said, once they get to the point where he becomes a surfer, it's like all right, come on, we got to get to the end. We're gonna do it. We're gonna mm-hmm. do a watcher story. We got to get you know we got to get this done. Um, so you know I I think the story would have been better served. And you know I, I I always comment that I feel like a hypocrite when I start calling for things to be more decompressed uh, because I complain about decompressed storytelling all the time. But this certainly would have been better served to have another 10 to 15 pages to it. And just, just expanding some of those story points and yeah. In other words, they, they shouldn't have done the watcher uh, backup story. They should have made this whole issue, the surface story. 
And the the longer format won't last very long. It goes to I think it's issue six, maybe seven. Yeah. Yeah, that's. Uh, I I have very little to complain about with this story though. I think this is a great one. Yeah, it's it's pretty fantastic, and really the only things we could you know supposedly complain about is not so much complaining as just you know. Saying, well, this 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 might have been a little bit different, but it still it still works as it is. We just have questions. Yeah, this you know this this was a point. Like I said, you know, I think uh, I think the surfer was Kirby's baby, but Kirby had a lot of babies, so I think he was able to like let go of it. But for whatever <laughs> reason, I think the surfer became Stan Lee's adopted baby, uh, and I think he felt very protective of the character because after this series. He was only used sparingly in the Marvel Universe until he got his own series, you know, in the 90s or the 80s, whenever it was that that long-running series went. Uh, I think his his uh, off and on with the Defenders is pretty much the main place to find him. And the occasional until, Fantastic Four issue, things. yeah. Yeah, very occasional Fantastic Four issue. And I was just looking, Seven is the last issue of um, the 25-cent bi-monthly 40 page story with issue eight. It goes to 20 pages, 15 cents every month. Yeah. I, of course, I, it only goes for another 10 issues after I that. I assume it was because sales were, were lagging and they had to try and put it to the regular size in hopes of selling more of them. Well, they had their quarterly, uh, they had their quarterly Spider-Man magazine, which was another element of the expansion that also only went two quarters. Yeah. I, I so, have both of those in, very beat up condition, but I do have them. And those are, those are much like this. Those were two books that I saved up to get because I wanted them for the, you know, I wanted them so badly. I was going to say I wanted them for the longest time, but when in reality it was probably only like a year or two. Uh, and when you get to be my age, a year or two isn't that much, but at the time it seemed like I wanted them forever. But yeah, this was a, this was a solid story. Um, I really, of the two, I enjoyed this a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> it's not, I don't think I don't think Nick Fury set the ball very high. No, well, although no, really you know, as, as we both said, the artwork in that story was something to behold. So it's it, and the art here is 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 definitely more house style. It's great and it does its job very very well, but it's more more what you'd expect from a Marvel comic. Yes, exactly. But it's uh, it it is more. It's it's not as groundbreaking, but I just I think it's terrific. Mm-hmm. And it feels like Yusema is trying to be Kirby in a few places. There are definitely some some panel designs. So I'm like, I think Kirby would have drawn that that way. Yeah, some of this, especially some of like when he's drawing Zen La, the you know the backgrounds and everything. Mm-hmm. He's got a little Kirby crackle in a few of them. Uh, you know, there's, there's definitely some uh, some Kirbyisms in here. Uh, but I, you know, the the the, the area where this story i think has it hands down over the uh nick fury one is the storytelling i don't even think you have to read the panels to kind of get a feel for what's going on here right you know you, you get which is what i was gonna say you get the you, this is what the mark. <laughs> you, get, you, you get the fine details from the uh from the word balloons but the story you get from the pictures which is what the marvel method was known for you know the artist would plot things out and tell the story through the visuals and it almost had to be like that because then Stan Lee comes along and has to narrate it based on those visuals. 
yeah, and it's it's fun sometimes. And I know you've uh, in in uh, Spider Man, the, the Spider Man podcast from years ago, you pointed out sometimes when uh, the visuals didn't quite match the dialogue or the narration. Mm-hmm. And I, I always think that's fun sometimes. When it's 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 fun in almost a mean way. It, it's an artifact of the process, you know, but it's 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 neat to kind of point that out sometimes. Right, we have any you have any more notes on this, or do you want to read it? I think I'm ready to rate it. Uh, um, your book, you go first. So the cover on this is it's not necessarily as grabbing as the shield cover was, but it is an iconic first issue cover. It does everything a first issue should do. It presents the character in a glorious and interesting way. Um, It says lots of good things about him. Uh, If you have any interest in the Silver Surfer at all, this cover says, hey, come buy this book. So I'm going to say an A on the cover. And the art, you know, like I said, it's, it's more standard but that's not a bad thing just that just the fact that it's not you know experimental Starenko moving outside the box does not detract from it at all uh, the uh, the facial expressions the panel to panel storytelling the uh the the dynamics of the characters and their their you know poses and everything the emotion like you were saying on zen law whenever they're going through stuff there's just so much here that you can sink your eyeballs into. And I do think that in a lot of places, maybe even most of the time, Buscema was trying to make you think this is Kirby's world. I'm just drawing in it. And, you know, I, I definitely give the art an A, a good, strong A. The, um, the story, it's not that it has problems it's just that it has some odd quirks um the yetis were fun but they really were out of nowhere uh the opening structure with the rescuing the colonel jameson and then going from capital to capital none of that seemed to have a point other than just giving the surfer something to do for a few pages and to put some framing around the origin um so I'm going to give the story a strong B. I, I think there are just some places where we could have spent less time on random stuff and more time on, you know, explaining how the surfer became emotionless and cold, you know, giving a more accurate retelling of the Fantastic Four, you know, Galactus arrival instead of glossing over everything. Um, it just it felt a little after spending so much time doing stuff, feel a little rush at the end. So a strong B for the storytelling. But if somebody wanted a Silver Surfer comic and wanted a starting place for the Silver Surfer besides the original Galactus trilogy, this would be, definitely be the, the one to hand them. Say, Silver Surfer number one, go read that Lee Buscema series because that's some good Surfer stuff. So the, uh, the overall book is an A. I mostly agree with just about everything you said. Uh I'm going to give the cover an A also. I think it's iconic. I think, uh, like you say, it may not be as visually arresting as the Steranko art, but it's, in its own way, it's every bit as good. Uh, And it definitely cries out by this book. And anybody who 
either was intrigued by or enjoyed the surfer in his appearances in Fantastic Four before this. I, I can't imagine seeing this on the stands and not wanting to buy it. Uh, the interior art, I think it's as you know pretty much as solid as it can be. I don't think there's any point where the artwork uh, lags at all. I think the storytelling is impeccable, and I'm going to say an A on the uh, artwork. Uh, the only area where we disagree a little bit is on the storytelling, because I enjoyed the Saving John Jameson, and I really enjoyed the Yetis, and the traveling around the the uh, capitals was only two panels anyway, so I'm not minding that. I think what I might have done differently if if I were giving this given this page count is I might have had the story end at the point when Galactus's hand lifts up and the surfer is there, and after that, we have five more pages, and I might have used those five pages to build up to that point a little bit more and end it with that. And then in the next issue, recount that, you know, he turned on Galactus and, you know, was, was stranded on Earth and let's move forward from there. Um, so, but I, I, I think, you know, the dialogue is fine. I think that the whole premise of it is really cool. Uh, you know, it, it could have been dragged out a little bit more and I would have enjoyed that, but just the same, uh, I, th I think it's an A. I, th I think it's A's all around on this book and I'll give the overall an A as well. All right. So that'll do it for these two issues. And John, thank you so much for picking this out and, and for contacting me and coming on again. When are you doing it? It was my When pleasure. are you doing it again next? Uh, you can do another couple months. That sounds good to me. And then, you know what? I'll last time out, I, I threw down the challenge to, for what to do. Next time out, I'll leave it up to your uh, to to whatever for you to run wild with whatever you think is the best way to go. All right. All right. So thanks again for coming on. What are you recording lately? So I have a mostly weekly podcast going on right now called Superman in Crisis. Uh, I have read every Superman comic from the pre-Crisis era from 1938 to 1986 and beyond. And so whenever I got to Crisis on Earth, I decided to make a podcast about it and about what Superman was doing during that time. And I say mostly weekly because um, I'm releasing every episode on the date that the comics came out, just in 2022, not 1985. And um, – there were some weeks that didn't have Superman comics, so those weeks don't have episodes. But, yeah, I'm going through all of Crisis, all of Superman stories during Crisis, and once Crisis wraps, I'm going to continue on to the end of the pre-Crisis Superman. So if you like Superman, if you like Crisis on Infinite Earths, if that is a gray area in your Superman knowledge, which happens to be true for a lot of people I've talked to, yeah, I just didn't read Superman during that time, then go check out Superman in Crisis at johnreadscomics.com. I've also been recently um, over at Married with Comics. Uh, we're not married, but um, Jonathan Schaefer Hames has been doing a show called The Rod Pod with his wife, Maggie, and she's taking some time off from that show. So he invited me on to be his uh, second chair for a while. And that's talking about the IDW Phase 2 Transformers series. So if you like Transformers, if you like those um, early 2010s Transformers comics from IDW, we are working our way through those, and they are heck of fun. Um, highly recommend you check us out over there. I'm having a great time reading those comics, because for me, it's my first time through that run. 
So it's all a mystery unfolding. So yeah, those are the two things I'm doing on the regular right now. By, by, and, by uh, way of a teaser, I'm going to throw out that John is also recording a show with Blaine uh, Dollar that uh, is not coming out for a while. Uh, and I was uh, privileged enough to be asked by them to be a guest on the first episode. Uh, yeah. So that's not going to be, you're not going to be seeing that for a while or hearing that for a while. But when you do hear it, I'm on it and uh, I'm excited about it. So uh just keep your eyes open or your ears open or keep something open. Keep your podcatcher open. Yeah. We're going to be revisiting a TV show on its 30th anniversary. And so that's going to be really fun. So that's really, yeah, that's very cool. And uh, they're revisiting a show. I, I'm, I'm not going to say what it is because I, I don't think that's my place, but they're revisiting a show that I haven't seen. And uh, except now I watched the first episode in order to guest star on their show. And now what I'm going to do is as they release episodes or as they get ready to release episodes, I'm going to, I'm going to watch it along with them. I'm going to, I'm going to watch as the episodes come out so that I can listen to them after I watch them. And I'm looking forward to well, doing that. We really enjoyed having you on. And I can, I can, I can attest that as we have gone on and, and I've seen some half dozen or so episodes of the first season. Now it has already gotten significantly stronger than that pilot episode was. So, um, I think you're in for a treat, especially being a Deep Space Nine fan that you are. Cool. Well, I'm looking forward to that. I just wish you'd get around to it already. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, John. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll catch you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Aquatic superhero, environmental superheroes have arrived. Superpowered from the forehead to the toes. Watch them change their very shape before your nose. See arcane striking superhero change to Viking superhero. Ah, ding and real swing and shield clinging superhero. They're the latest. They're